Each year, as Christmas draws near, there is something special in the air. We all feel it. From the decorations and carols, warm drinks and cozy slippers, it's as if the season taps into a holy longing deeply ingrained within us. You see, this season stirs up within our souls a burning desire we were created to crave. The advent of our King, the arrival of our Savior, our God come near. All of our lives we've experienced the curse of the fall, the shadow that sin cast upon this wounded world. But with the arrival of Jesus, hope came down, love drew near, our King came to conquer. Death will be no more. Shame will be undone. For with the advent of Jesus, the curse is broken. What is up, Rise City Church? Hey, if you don't know me, uh, I'm, I'm Scott. I'm actually not one of the pastors on staff here. I, I just work a, a normal job, but every once in a while I get the, the pleasure and the privilege of preaching the word. It was back in like 2015, like somewhere in the middle of 2015. I, I'm about to finish up all the credits I need to get my associate's degree in science. I've gotten all my prereqs done. I'm accepted into the Bachelor's of Science of Nursing program at Linfield. I have a full ride full scholarships, and not only that, but actually my, my work is going to pay my full wage while I go to school full-time. Like, I've got it made. And I'm at work. I work in primary care at this point, and I dart into this empty patient room, close the door, sit down in the chair, and just hang my head, and I'm utterly depressed and distraught. I just had a bad patient interaction, like I had called this guy, let him know, like, hey, like the doctor's not going to renew your pain meds, and here's why I get cussed out. This has happened hundreds of times, it's no big deal. But no, this time it broke me. Hey, and I, I start to reflect, and I realize, like, I am not made for this. Like, the people I work with, like, they are designed for this type of thing. I've been doing this for nine years, and I've hated it for nine years. I am not good at patient care. Like, I'm not good at it. Why do I keep doing this? Like, why do I keep doing this? And I just keep asking this question, like, why? Like, why am I doing this? Ten minutes go by. I get off the phone with my wife. I cancel my admission to, to nursing school, and I'm looking for another job. But, but this question of why, why do I keep doing this? I, I think a lot of us ask this question, but we, we ask it in a different context. Maybe it's you're looking at your budget and you're, or you're looking at your bank account and you see like, man, how am I even going to make it through the next week? And you feel the anxiety and the stress over it. And as you're looking at that bank account, you start scrolling through all the purchases that you've made and you just see all the frivolous, impulsive purchases that you've done. And you're just like, why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep living like this? Maybe it's after days, weeks, months, even years of just unhealthy eating habits and you don't feel good and you're like, why do I keep doing this? Maybe it's waking up in the morning with a headache and your stomach's churning and you're hungover once again 
And it's like, why do I keep doing this to myself? Maybe it's another blow up with your spouse or another broken relationship with a roommate or a friend and you're just struggling through it. Like, why, why do I start these fights? Why do I keep doing this? I think this is, this is the question that the Apostle Paul is actually asking in Romans chapter 7. That, that this is the refrain that, that he is saying. is like, why do I keep doing the things that I'm doing? Let's take a look at it. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I'm not practicing what I would like to do but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but the, I practice the very evil I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against me and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Do you, do you see what, what Paul is crying out? He's like, this is what I desire. I desire these things. I know these things are good, but I just keep doing this and I hate it. Why do I keep doing this? And, and what he's actually going to give us is he's going to give us a little glimmer of hope that the Holy Spirit through Paul is going to show us where the hope is when we ask these types of things. And it may not be like the practical things of budget that we all ask, but like, like actual sin issues in our lives. Like, like, why do we keep doing this? And he's going to show us where the hope is. But, but one of the things that he does in all this is he keeps bringing up this thing about the law. And he uses this word law a lot. But the weird thing is, is in, in there, he uses the word law like three or four different ways. And you're like, well, you use it this way, Paul. And then you use it a completely different way. And then you say, actually, this law is against this law. And they're like clashing. Like, what, what, what are you talking about? What, what do you mean by this law? And, and so there's, there's at least three very distinct types of laws that he exposes in this text. The first one is in chapter 7, verse 14, he says, we know the law is spiritual. And then he says, he's like, I confirm by hating what I do that the law is good, right? And this is the law of decree. This is God's law of decree for us. This is actually what you find in like the, the Old Testament, like the, the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that God has a decree that says, hey, this is how you shall live. Right, the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not fashion an idol and worship it. You shall not use my name in vain. The, this law of decree that has to do with our relationship with him. And, and, and even with the relationship with others of like, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not covet. Do not bear false witness. Right? There, there's these commandments 
We even see Jesus quote Deuteronomy chapter 6 when when he says, hey, the greatest law is this, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right, so there's this law of decree that, that he's dealing with. And then there's this thing like the law of flesh and the law of mind. But, but as he's dealing with the law of decree, he has to be really careful. I, I think about it like this. Um, a number of years back, my buddy Andy was like renovating this house. He bought this house in Portland and it, it was like kind of a garbage dump and he had to like renovate it. And I'm over there like every night helping him fix this thing up. And he's a little bit claustrophobic. So he'd ask me if I would do this one thing. We had to like fix just a little bit of the plumbing of the toilet going down into the sewer. And he didn't want to have to rip open the entire floor. So it's, I'm like, yeah, I'll go into the crawl space and do this. And now, now this crawl space, the access point, it's fine. Like, you know, it's like 20 inches. There's plenty of room, whatever. But as I get back towards this toilet, this is the smallest crawl space I have ever seen in my life. Like I, I've been in some crawl spaces. Like this is the smallest crawl space that I've ever been in to the point that my back is on the dirt and to get under the next joist, I can't have my face up because my nose will be on the joist and I have to turn it sideways and I'm like slithering like a snake trying to get under it as like my chest barely passes. I am not a big dude. Like... <laughs> This is tight. I have to thread the needle through this. And I think Paul feels this too, that he's got to thread the needle. Not because there's a hard stop on one side, like ground and joists, but but he has to thread the needle because to veer to one side or to the other is destruction. Because this is what he's been laying out in, in the whole book of Romans, that We can't do it by the law. That if you're trying to live by the decrees of the law in order to obtain your righteousness before God, in order to obtain favor before him, it doesn't work because you've already broken it. This is the whole point of like the first three chapters. Chapter one, verse 18, all the way through chapter three, verse 20 is an indictment against humanity. All of us are sinned. Like no one escapes. We have all broken the law. And there's no way by doing the works of the law that you can be made righteous in his sight. And we are therefore condemned by the law. And so we can't go to this side and saying, hey, I gotta live by the law. And so in chapter three, verse 21, there's this shift and it starts talking about faith. Chapter four is all about faith. Chapter five, about through faith, we, we obtain peace with God. But we get to this point in chapter six, verse one, where he's like, well, hey, there's grace. There's grace. But then the question arises, well, if it's not by the law, and I don't have to live by this, does that mean when I receive God's grace and that gives him glory that I can just go back to living however I want? And he's like, no, may it never be. And so he's still trying to thread this needle. Like, we don't get to just keep living in sin. That's a disgrace. But you can't become righteous by the, God, by the, the law. And he's trying to thread this needle this whole way. And in the midst of it, there's this struggle and there's this turmoil because there's these other laws at work. The law of the members of my body, the law of the flesh that's waging war against the law of the mind, verse 24 of chapter 7. There's this law, sorry, verse 23. There's this war that's going on. 
And, and it's like, okay, so what, it, what do you mean, Paul, by the law of your mind? What do you mean by the law of the flesh or the law of the members of your body? And here's the way I think about it. I, I like science. I'm like a science guy. That's actually kind of like why I was doing the nursing thing is because I liked all the like, learning thing. I just didn't like the human interaction part. Like, and that's a big part of it. But so I, I, I like the scientific process and, and you know, you make an observation. You're like, huh, I wonder why that is. Let me create this hypothesis. And let me test my hypothesis with the control and variables. And let me deal with confounding variables and uh, like definitions, operational definitions and all this stuff. And then you get enough hypotheses in like one section together that, that are consistently confirmed. And you're like, hey, I actually now have a theory that is supported by evidence, right? But then we have something in science called loss. And there are very few scientific laws. There are very few because they have, there's something that has to happen with a scientific law. It has to be confirmed and repeated over and over and over and over and over and over and over again without fail. Without fail. For it to be a law in science, it has to be confirmed without fail. And so we get things like the law of gravity. Gravity always works. Mass brings mass towards itself, and the larger the mass, the larger that pull. We do not defy the law of gravity. Even if you think about helicopters and planes and all the cool stuff that we do, it works within the confines of the law of gravity. We cannot break it. No matter what we try and do, we have to go by the law of gravity. And I think this is what he's talking about when he talks about the law of sin, the law of the members, the, the, the flesh, and what's happening in the members of my body. Because I am a son of Adam. Right, as we looked last week, as we looked at not the creation story, but also the fall. And we look at the fall of humankind. And sin comes into us all. This is Romans chapter 5. Like, there's these two Adams. The first Adam, who's actually named Adam, and the second Adam, whose actual name is Jesus. And through the one comes death, and through the other comes life. But because I am a son of Adam, because we are all sons and daughters, like, like there's this innate sinfulness that's in humans. And you want to see this play out in reality? Look at a one-year-old child. You do not teach them how to sin. They just do it. You know what they learn along the ways? They just learn to get better at it. But you don't need to teach them to do it. They'll do it. Because it's this law. If I am human, I sin. Without fail, this happens. We, we see this. But, but then it's like, okay, well, what is the law of my mind? Because this is waging war. I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner. What is the law of my mind? Well, to understand this, I think we have to go to chapter 8, verse 6. Now, in the original, like, Paul's not, like, actually, like, doing chapter divisions. Those came, like, 1,500 years later. So this is, like, a continuous thought for him. But I think chapter 8, verse 6 gives us a clue into 723. And it says this, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. The mind set on the spirit. And Paul's like, man, there is a mind that is set on the spirit, and that is life and peace. And he goes, I have this law working within the members of my body, that my flesh is fighting against the law of my mind. And I think he's referencing this, that the mind is set on the spirit. 
And here's the reality. Here's why it's a law that happens over and over and over and over again. It's because if you are in Christ, if you have faith in Jesus unto salvation, you are a regenerated, risen human being. Your spirit was dead and now you are alive. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, but God, being rich in mercy, made you alive together with him. Right? You were dead, now you're alive. That's Ephesians chapter 2. And if that's true of you, if you have faith in Jesus unto salvation, you have been awakened to new life and you have a mind that is set on the spirit. If you are in Christ, you do have a mind that is set on the spirit. You have a taste for the things of God and you want the things of God. If you are a regenerated person, that is true of you with no fail. That is true. But the problem is, is like Jason laid out last week, we live in this not yet kingdom. If you're a believer, this has happened and you're regenerated, but the problem is, is the flesh isn't gone. It's not gone. It's not fully dealt with yet. And so there's a war that's at hand in us. And this war, this turmoil, this thing is what gets us to the point where we ask the question, why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep doing the things that I'm doing that are destructive? I want this, God. I have a mind for this. You have given me a mind for this. You've regenerated me. I want this, but I keep doing this. God, why do I keep doing it? Why do I keep doing that? And Paul as he wants to start giving us this glimmer of hope, he gives us the answer where we need to start. When we ask that question, why do I keep doing this? This is where we start. Verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Man, can you just picture Paul saying this? Wretched man that I am, who will free me from the body of this death? This is not just some like logical thing. Wretched man that I am. Like this is Paul crying out. He sees the things that he does. He sees the destruction that he continues to go after. He sees these things and knows what he wants. And I keep doing the things that I, he hates. And you can just see him hanging his head and just dropping to his knees. And wretched man that I am am who will free me and this is the right response this is the first step into hope because something needs to happen to deal with sin something needs to happen to deal with sin and we have to address this I, I remember for my, myself it was 2003 I just got back from training in the army I'm going to be in the reserve so it's one week in a month two weeks a year I come back to Portland I don't know any place to get connected into except for Skate Church. And I go back there, and this dude that I had known from, from previously, like before my, all my party days, this guy, Ben Thomas, he's like, dude, wh what's up? Like, where you been? What's your story? And so I tell him, and he's like, all right, here's the deal. You're going to come to Canada, and you're going to share your testimony. You're going to share about, like, your party days, and you're going to share what God has done in your life. I'm like, Okay. So I go and I share that testimony and, and I, I have a chance to, to preach and to share a number of different times in different places. But, but here's the problem. During my party days in high school, I was a liar. And, and, and like people lie, but you, you know those people that everything that comes out of their mouth is a fabrication. 
You know those people that are always telling stories and you know you can never trust a single word that comes out of their mouth? That was me. And I brought that in to a relationship with Jesus. This part of the flesh is still there. And you can probably see where this is going, but, but I'd, I'd seen and heard other people's, te- others' testimonies that are gnarly. And I, it was powerful, and I wanted that. So I fabricated a lot of my testimony. And it was wrong. I, it, 20 years later, I look back, and I still am just like pained by what I did. And I look back, and I, I did this a number of times. I'm like, I'm supposed to be preaching the gospel of God, and I'm lying to people. A year and a half, two years goes by, and I'm at this worship night. And everybody else is worshiping, and I'm sitting in the back, and I'm wrecked. And the Holy Spirit is just convicting me, showing me my sin. And he tells me in, without words, like, dude, like, you got to go confess. So I go back to Ben Thomas, and I tell him what I did. And he's like, well, dude, you got to talk to the head of Skate Church, Paul Anderson. Man, I remember that. I remember going up his stairs. I can picture his desk and all of his books, his office chair, and his face there looking at me as I'm telling him what I've done. But, but most of all, I, I remember the words that he said to me after I confess. And he looks at me and he goes, dude, that's lame. Dude, that's lame. And can I just tell you, that was exactly what I needed to hear in that moment. That was Holy Spirit inspired leading Paul to tell me that. And you might be sitting here, you might have been a believer for a while, and you're like, oh, wait, hold up, I don't know about that. That feels like you're, he's heaping up shame, and I don't know about like saying something like that. Like, I don't know that that's the right thing. Let me tell you why that that's the right thing. Because what Paul Anderson didn't tell me is he didn't look at me and say, dude, that's lame. How could you do that? That's not what he said. He didn't look at me and say, dude, that's lame. I can't believe it. And shake his head. That's not what he did. He looked at me and he said, dude, that's lame. Here's what I see going on in your life. You sinned. And the Holy Spirit is convicting you. And you're moving in his will. And he's changing things in you. And he's bringing about restoration and reconciliation and repentance in your life. The reason why I needed to hear that so much at that point in time is because Paul didn't heap up shame on me, but he called sin what it was. And my experience up into that point in the church was a lot of times when people are talking about sin and confessing sin, it's like, oh, it's okay oh yeah, we all do that. It's not not that big of a deal. No, it's a big deal. It's not okay. It's lame. Go through the scriptures from beginning to end, from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelations chapter 22. Like you go all the way from the beginning to the very end. You will not find one pen stroke, one iota, one dot that says sin is okay or that it's small. 
You will not find it. It's not okay. And I needed to hear that, that my sin is lame and it's wrong. And this is what Paul is doing. He's calling his own sin like that. He looks at, man, why do I keep doing this? And the answer is not, hey, it's okay. Everybody deals with it. The answer is, wretched man that I am. And he asks the right question. The right question that we need to ask. Who will free me from the body of this death? Who will free me? I can't do it. I can't live by the law. But I'm not going to go over here into license and reap destruction here. Who will free me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will free me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God. The only one that can do it. The only one that can make it happen is only by reliance on him. There is no other way, no work, no thing that we can do. It is only by reliance on the living God and the work that Jesus Christ did that we can have any freedom from this, any salvation, any hope. And the glimmer in the window of hope is opened up to us. Wretched man that I am. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And then we're about to hit chapter 8, verse 1. And can I just tell you, this is the most comforting statement that has ever been uttered in all humanity, in all of human existence to a sinner. That, that is a bold claim, and I will stand on it unabashedly. This is the most comforting statement that has ever been made and stated towards a sinner in all of human existence. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ? Do you have faith unto salvation in Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, the promised one who was to come? There is no condemnation for you. The courtroom is adjourned. The, 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 the God, the judge, has already dropped the gavel. He's already declared for you righteous. No condemnation. It's already done. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Man, what greater comfort could we have? Why do I keep doing this thing that leads to destruction? Man, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Man, we are freed to live. Jesus, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus always works this way. When it hits you, when it awakens faith in you, you turn to Jesus and you have real faith in him, it awakens life and it frees you from the chains of destruction. It breaks open prison doors. We are freed to live in Christ. If you don't know this or not experiencing this, I, I hope you know that the life of a Christian, the life of a believer, the life of someone in a relationship with Jesus is not a life of someone missing out on the things of the world. It's a life of someone who has left the refuse and the garbage behind and gets the freedom to live by the power of the Spirit in eternal and abundant joy. Man, that is the life of the believer. We get to have our chains broken 
and are freed to live. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. And you want, you want a Christmas verse? Man, it's Christmas time. You want a Christmas verse? It's Romans chapter 8, verse 3. You might not think of it as a Christmas verse, but this is a Christmas verse. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. The law couldn't do it. It couldn't save me because I had already broken it. It still stands as holy and righteous and good, and I'm condemned under it without the blood of Jesus. It still stands as good, but it cannot save me. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus became one of us. This is what Christmas is all about. That Jesus came, became one of us, the hope and the light of the world, the one that was promised in Genesis chapter three. It's the anticipated arrival. It's the advent, we're waiting. Who's it gonna be? When's the Messiah gonna be here? When's the Savior gonna come? And Jesus shows up. He humbles himself and he becomes made in the likeness of you and me. Sinful flesh, yet without sin himself. Man, he steps into humanity. Jesus knows what it's like to walk a mile in our shoes. He knows what it's like. He knows our pain and our troubles and our struggles because he walked them. What the law could not do, weak as it was, through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus didn't just show up. He did something after he got here. He went to that cross. He saw Jerusalem. He saw that cross. He knew what was coming. And he didn't turn and run like Jonah did. He set his face and said, let's go. I know it's coming. And he had his hands pierced and his feet pierced and a crown put on his head and beaten in there and blood rolling down. But you know what he did before he did that? You know what he did before he did that? Is he took the sins of all believers of all time. He took the filthy rags of my sin and he drapes it over himself. He takes our sins, past, present, and future, and he clothes himself in it. The refuse and the garbage of our sin, he wraps himself in it so that when those nails pierce his hands, when that cat of nine tails with the bits of bone and glass and steel rip the flesh out of his back, and when that spear pierces his side, my sin is condemned in the flesh of Jesus. And if you are in Christ, so is all of yours. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. Sending his own son in the likeness of sin in the flesh, he condemned it. But not only that, not only did he condemn that sin in the flesh, but he did one other thing. Look, look at this next verse, verse four. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not only does he take the filthy rags of our sin and clothe himself in it and then get pierced and condemned for it, 
but he takes his own righteousness, his own beautiful righteousness, his own perfect fulfilling of the law of loving the Lord as God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving his neighbor as himself. His perfect fulfillment of the law is like a robe of righteousness, and he takes it off, and he puts it on our shoulders when we have faith in him. And that's why chapter 8, verse 1 can be true. There is no condemnation. Jesus looks at you in that robe that you've been covered in, your sins dealt with, and he sees that robe and he says, righteous. Because he sees Jesus' life. Man, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of breaking chains of everything that we feel tied to. Why do we keep doing this? This is the hope that can open those prison doors. We are freed to live a life in Christ Jesus now. If we would have faith in him and walk with him, set our minds on him. Verse five. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. Man, this is that law at work. People that don't know Jesus, where if you are in Christ, this is where you were. This is where I was. Mind set on the flesh for destruction, thinking this is awesome. It's not awesome. But the mind that is set on the spirit, the things of the spirit, which brings life and peace. When I read that verse, every time I read that verse, I think of the apostle Peter as he's being discipled by Jesus, him and like these other guys. They, they're walking with Jesus all the time and there's this one time where they get on this boat and they go out, but Jesus like hangs back, doesn't go with them. And then in the middle of the night, it's dark. Jesus comes walking on the water out to them. And they're all like freaking out. Like, it's a ghost. And Jesus like, chill out. It's like me, bro. Peter hears his voice, gets excited. Jesus, can I come too? Can I walk on the water? And he's like, yeah, come on out, man. Can you, can you just imagine it? Jesus is, or Peter's hands on the side of the boat, like stepping out. Can you imagine that first step, just on the water? And then the other foot, looking at Jesus. And you let your hand go, like, Peter's a fisherman. This shouldn't be happening. He knows it. He's standing on the water. And he's looking at Jesus. This is a miracle in more at, at hand. Like, this is happening. And he takes a step. And he looks at Jesus. And he takes a step. Man, this is incredible. But what happens? He's got his face on Jesus. And out of the corner of his eye, there's a movement. Some whitewash. And he looks over, and there's waves. Big waves. And doubt and fear creeps in. And you know what? You know what's not in his field of view at this moment? It's Jesus. Just the waves. And it's at this moment that he begins to sink. Nothing to grab onto. And he begins, begins to sink. But you know what? As he cries out, you know who's right there 
Jesus. And he reaches down and he grabs his hand and he pulls him out. He goes, why'd you doubt? <laughs> I got you. I got you. And Jesus is right there. But I, I say that I, I think of that every time I see this verse because this is kind of what I see going on. When Peter has his mind and his eyes focused on Jesus, as long as his eyes are focused on the living God, everything's fine and miracles are happening, they're at work. And the second he's distracted by the things and the worries of the world, all sorts of terrible things start to happen. But Jesus is there to catch him. Jesus is there to catch us every single time. If we would have faith in Jesus and keep our eyes on Jesus, and Jesus is breaking chains. He is opening prison doors. He has given us life in him, a life that can leave all the garbage and the refuse behind, and a life living in him. So what do we do? What do we do knowing all of this? And how do I, how do I take this that I know now or know again and just needed to be reminded of and actually live in this freedom? How do, I know I'm free to live. How do I actually live in it? A few things. I, I think the first thing is just could we call sin utterly sinful? Can we not make excuses for sin? Can we follow after Paul in this and say, wretched person that I am, and call sin for what it is, not making light of it, but also not heaping up shame and living in shame, but just calling it what it is and moving into confession to him and so many times as we need with others. Could that be what we do? Address sin for what it is and repent. Jesus has freed us by what he's done from this old, the power of this old life. And that power in the spirit is to live a life of life in peace because our mind can be set on him. And can we be a people that keep our face set to Jesus looking at him? Face set to Jesus by picking up the word every single morning and letting him talk to us by spending time with him in prayer, keeping our face upon him, and crying out, who will save me from the body of this death? Only you, God. Would you save me every day from this old life, assembling together and having other people keep pointing us back to Jesus, and that we would point each other back? Would we do that? day in and day out, week in and week out. But here's the reality. There will be a day. There will be a lot of days where you get distracted and you look away and you start to sink. Knowing this moment, Jesus is right there and he reaches down and he might ask you, why'd you doubt? And it might sting a little bit. But he's right there and he's got you. Jesus has you. He will free you from the chains. He has the power to break it. We are a people freed to live. Don't turn away in shame 
but just look to him in gratefulness and gratitude. He's got you. We are people freed to live in the grace of the gospel of Jesus. Let's live in it. Let's pray. Father, that is the most comforting thing that I have ever heard. That I'm not condemned. God, I pray right now that every single person in this room would just feel the weight of what you have done for us. That we would look to you sending your own son, Jesus, you stepping into humanity, knowing what it's like to be one of us and going towards that cross. That we would thank you for that. And that we would live our lives dependent on you every step of the way with our eyes focused on you. And God, would you help us when we fail and we ask, why do I keep doing this? That we would see that you open prison doors and that you break chains and you have freed us to live by the power of your spirit in life and in peace. Would you work this in our lives and make us a light to the world through it? We pray this in Jesus' powerful name and his blood poured out for us on that cross. Amen.